John chapter 1. Woo, there you go. John chapter 1. We're going to pick up this morning in verse 14 and consider it through verse 18. As we come to the text of Scripture this morning, uh, I'll call to your memory what Greg rightly told us a couple of weeks ago. When we began our series in the Gospel of John, uh, rather through John's prologue, Greg pointed out that while, while we have in these verses some of the simplest, most accessible language in the Scriptures, here we find the deepest theology known to man. This text has been the subject and reference point of so much of the development of Orthodox Christology down through the ages. This text has been discussed at the great Christological councils throughout church history. And a right understanding of this text refutes and, and protects us against a number of different heresies. The heresies of Arianism, Apollinarianism, Gnosticism, the list goes on. A right understanding of this text protects us against all of these things. It is, friends, a deep theological text. When, when considering this section of Scripture, you find yourself immediately in the deep end of the proverbial theological pool. And you know as well as I do that when you're in the deep end of the pool, you've only got two options. You either sink or you swim. So we're going to swim hard this morning, church. And in doing so, we're going to find that John is laboring under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to advance one main idea in this text. That idea is that the God of glory has identified himself to his people as the God of grace. The God of glory has identified himself to his people as the God of grace. John develops this idea by focusing our attention on two things. First, he focuses our attention on the glory of God made known in Christ. And then, he focuses our attention on the grace of God made known in Christ. As per usual, John's two points will serve as the two points of the sermon this morning as well. And so let's now look to the text together and hear what the Holy Spirit says to the church, and we'll ask for the Lord's blessing as we consider it. John 1, verse 14. And the word of excuse me. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to Him in prayer now. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we do ask, God, that now as we consider it, that You would work in us to help us behold Your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, God, we, we ask that we would not just behold some theological realities, God, but that You would change us in this time. Lord, please, God, make us more like Your Son, Jesus, as we behold His glory. And we ask it in His name. Amen. Well, the first thing that John draws our attention to is the glory of God in Christ. Having spoken in the passage earlier of the the mission of the Savior in coming to save His people from sin, John now continues with an explanation of how the Savior has come to accomplish this mission. Sticking with his use of the idea of the the logos, or the word, to refer to Jesus, John says, and the word became flesh. These five words, the word became flesh. These five words, friends, could easily take up the remainder of our time together this morning. The importance of these words can't be overstated. The the, the profundity and the the perplexity of this idea really can't be understood by the human mind. We can state it as truth. We can accept it as so. And we can appreciate it to some degree. But never to the degree that these five words warrant. You see, here John is telling us The mystery of mysteries. He's already said earlier in the passage, in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Thus, the apostle sets before us now the explanation that in order to make salvation possible, God actually became man. Now, oftentimes, Jonathan actually spoke to this a bit a moment ago. Oftentimes, we can fail to apprehend the the, the wonder that is Christmas because we've become so used to hearing the good news that it hardly comes to our ears as news anymore. So, just in case you've become desensitized to how awe-inspiring this reality is, we, we have to meditate on this for a moment. You've often heard me say that the most fundamental distinction in the universe is the creator-creature distinction. This distinction needs no explanation, really. There is but one God from whom all of creation has been created out of nothing. Therefore, God is fundamentally set apart and infinitely superior to all other beings. This being the the nature of the divide between the Creator and 
the creatures, it's only logical to conclude that no party can cross from one side of this divide to the other. And this passage actually doesn't refute that. It is illogical to conceive of a created being becoming the creator. And it's equally illogical for the creator of all things to become a created thing. And were those the only two options, then we would indeed have to conclude that it's not only impossible for mankind to cross the creator-creature divide, but it would be impossible for God to cross this divide as well. However, what John is communicating here in saying that the Word became flesh is not saying that Jesus somehow exchanged His divinity for humanity. That's not the idea. Rather, in becoming flesh, John describes what no human mind could ever have imagined. He means in saying He became flesh that the eternally existent divine Son of God added to His existence a real, true human nature. This is precisely what John means. No more, no less. That Jesus has added to His existence the nature of a man. Not exchanging His divine nature, but adding to it the true and fully human nature. The term flesh that John uses here just to be clear, it is not used in the way that Paul often uses it, to, to, to denote the corruption of mankind. Throughout his writing, John tends to use this term to describe the, the low and frail, dying state in which man finds himself. The apostle is making clear, Jesus did not just appear to have a human existence, but took to himself a true and thoroughly complete human existence. In this, his taking a human nature to himself, this was necessary in order to accomplish his mission of redemption. As the second Adam, the representative head of the human race, Jesus has, as Paul says, been born of a woman born under the law in order to become our righteous substitute before the Father. And in becoming our substitute, He has taken our nature to Himself that He might, as the Scriptures say, be the firstborn among many brothers. To quote one theologian here, he says, whatever Christ has not assumed, He did not heal. You see, if God has not assumed all of our nature, then He cannot redeem all of our nature. But, but praise God, John tells us here that the wonder of wonders has taken place in Christ. The creator-creature barrier has been crossed. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, has condescended to this world. He has subjected Himself to a space-time existence not known to Him in eternity past. 
And all this to accomplish his mission of redeeming a people to himself and for himself. And it was a a mission that he came to accomplish. John continues here by saying, and he dwelt among us. And this communicates two things really to us. First, we understand that not only did Jesus take a nature like ours, but he existed in the world for an extended period of time, experiencing it as we do. We observed last week that God has not stood far off at a distance from us, announcing to mankind the good news of reconciliation with Him. Jesus has entered into our world, drawing near to us in order to both announce and accomplish our salvation. And because of this, we're comforted with the fact that Jesus is actually able to sympathize with us. The author of Hebrews says that he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself was beset with weakness. Praise God, church. Ours is not a God who is far off, but he has drawn near to us in frailty and weakness, becoming sympathetic with us. This John communicates in saying that Jesus has dwelt among us. But he also communicates something else. The truth that he dwelt among us communicates to us that he was here but for a time. The term dwelt that John uses here is a term that the Old Testament uses to refer to the tabernacle where God dwelt among the Israelites. And and just as it was never meant for God to permanently dwell among the people in that tent, it was never Jesus' purpose to dwell permanently with His people in the frail state of humanity. It was His purpose to raise men up, you see, beyond their frail, fallen state to restore them to the glorious, sinless condition in which He created them. And the the temporal state of of His humanity is observable enough in what John continues to write. Look again there at verse 14. John writes, And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Though Jesus has legitimately taken on humanity in its fullest sense, the the persistence of His divinity could not be missed by those who knew Him and observed Him. The Apostle says that His glory has been seen. Now, Now, if you're not familiar with the term, glory really carries with it the idea of worth and and weight. When we speak of the glory of God, it communicates all that makes God worthy of our worship. His his power and His might. His wisdom and His honor. The Apostle says that His glory has been seen. 
And, and this is not the glory that we attribute to an accomplished or a noble person. This is not the glory that we give to even the best of men that the world has known. No, th- this is an inherent glory. Look again at what John says. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. You see, in His teaching us about the Son of God taking human form, John is highlighting for us the wonder of the Incarnation by underscoring the reality that there can be no denial of Jesus' full divinity. Here, he's he's holding these two things in tension for us, saying, yes, the second member of the Godhead has become man, but make no mistake, he has not ceased to be God. The, the divinity of Christ was ever-present. And, and it was clearly manifest throughout His earthly ministry. His glory, to use the Apostle's turn, has been seen and recorded for us. It's been seen and recorded for us in His sinless perfection. It's been seen and recorded in His miracles, in His transfiguration. And most chiefly in His resurrection. But but these specific observations aren't even what John points to to speak of the glory of Christ. He, He speaks of broad categories. What does he point to? Well, it's the two things that we sang about just a few minutes ago when we sang that famous song, Joy to the World. What did we sing? He rules the world in truth and grace. Look at the end of verse 14. John says, in speaking of Christ's glory, that He was full of grace and truth. The two things that mankind stands most in need of is what made Jesus' glory most evident. John's use of the word grace is multifaceted because Jesus was full of grace in every way. Of course, when we use the term grace, we are referring to the unmerited favor of God. We see the anointing grace of God rest on Jesus in His unchanging character, in His benevolent disposition throughout His earthly ministry. It was grace that flowed from Jesus as He lived the sinless life for us on our behalf. It was grace that He went about healing with compassion and kindness. It was grace that He declared to men and women the forgiveness of their sins. And ultimately, it was grace issuing from Him that revealed that He was full of truth also. By saying that He was full of truth, John does not just, excuse me, just mean that Jesus speaks truth as opposed to falsehood. He certainly intends that, but beyond that, the idea here is that Jesus is the full revelation of truth as opposed to the partial revelation of truth made known in the the shadows and figures of the Old Testament. 
He was full of truth as he was the fulfillment of the ceremonies of the Old Covenant. And he is the truth as all the promises under that Old Covenant find fulfillment of their reality in him. Paul states this explicitly in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, saying, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. John the Baptist also testifies to the glory of God in Jesus. The apostle writes in the next verse, John bore witness about Him and cried out, This is He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. In the first century thought, older always equaled superior. But John the Baptist says that Jesus, who came after him, ranks before him. And there's no way around the fact that Jesus came on the world stage after John. John the Baptist was born before Jesus, and John began his earthly ministry before Jesus did. You'll remember it was John that baptized the Lord Jesus. So how is it then that John can ascribe glory and honor to Jesus, claiming that he ranks before him? He answers this at the end of the verse. Look there, he says, because he was before me. So John the Baptist agrees with the testimony we've already read from the apostle in verse 1 of this chapter. The two of them harmoniously testify to the glory of Christ in light of his eternal existence. They would agree with the Nicene Creed proclaiming of Jesus that He is the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, the creed says. This, friends, is His glory. And the reality of His glory is what makes the incarnation the wonder of wonders that He has become flesh, who is glory. This is the true miracle of Christmas. And with the glory of Christ now dialed into focus, John begins drawing our attention to another truth. He moves from teaching that the glory of God is made known in Christ to teaching that the grace of God of God is made known in Christ. But the manifestation of Christ's glory had to be established first because, as we'll see, in the Apostle's mind, it's from the overflow of His glory that we experience His grace. The grace of God in Christ is what the Apostle moves to now. John continues in verse 16, saying, For from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. We've already seen in verse 14 that John views the the grace of God to be the apex of 
the glory of God. Or at least the clearest manifestation of it in Christ. And he advances this idea here, where he has told us before that Jesus' glory was made known through his being full of grace and truth. In this verse, he tells us it is out of the overflow of that fullness that we have all received grace. And when he says we all here, he's hearkening back to verse 12 of this chapter in reference to all who Jesus has given the right to become children of God. And what becomes so very evident here in John's writing is that salvation is found in a person, friends. Salvation is not an idea or a concept. It's not even primarily a verdict or a pardon from sin that God grants you. No, the Scriptures resound with the declaration that God is our salvation. Salvation is union with Christ. And the benefits of forgiveness and justification and sanctification and glorification and all the other benefits flow from our union with Christ. But He Himself, friends, is our salvation. And this grace that John says that we've received from Him is both immovable and immeasurable. It's fixed and it's full, friends. John brings the greatness of this grace into focus by saying we have all received grace upon grace. Now, the rendering of this phrase in the original language is sort of difficult to interpret. It, it literally reads, grace instead of grace, or grace in exchange for grace. So the commentators differ over exactly what to do with this phrase. But, but when taken in context, given the contrast that John gives in the very next verse, the meaning's pretty clear. Look there at verse 17. For clarity, John writes for us, for, indicating a purpose clause, he, he says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the grace that we receive upon grace is to be understood as the full, fixed grace that the members of the new covenant receive over against that temporary, partial grace that was known under the Old Covenant. One writer captures the progression of thought this way. <clears throat> the evangelist's idea seems to be that as one supply of grace is given and used, it is, as it were, given back to the bestower who substitutes for it a fresh and unused vessel filled with new grace. He might have said grace upon grace, one supply being piled on the other. But his notion is rather one supply given in substitution for the other. You see, it's not that grace was absent from the Old Covenant altogether. But John wants to be clear that the wonder of the work of Christ 
is that under the new covenant, we experience a grace that is infinitely superior to the grace made available under the old covenant. As infinitely superior as the mediator of the new covenant is to the old, so is the grace made available through it. This is made clear to us in Hebrews chapter 10. It's there we read, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. And it goes on to say, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. While God granted grace under the law, it was a conditional grace. You can hear this in the declarations that God made throughout the Old Testament. Remember the promise that God made in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 5? Listen to it. God says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. You hear the conditions? If you, then. But listen to the promise of the new covenant that Christ brings that's promised to us in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. What conditions do you hear in that, church? None. Not one. This, friends, is the grace that Christ brings to us in His incarnation. And take notice, friends, it, if what we receive from Christ is the overflow of His nature, which is the idea that John has developed in this passage, then why is it that Christ is said to be full of grace and truth in both verse 14 and verse 16, yet we stand, according to the passage, simply to receive grace upon grace? What calls for the shift in terms? We could dwell on the particulars of that for a long time. But one writer puts it succinctly, saying, Grace is the chosen New Testament word for the whole fullness of the new covenant. It is all that dwells in Christ for those who are His. Grace is all 
that dwells in Christ for those who are His. Hear the good news, friends. To those in Christ, it is grace all the way down. I told you at the outset of the sermon that the main idea that John is developing in these verses is that the God of glory has identified Himself to His people as the God of grace. And this distillation of John's thought process really comes to the fore in verse 18. Look at verse 18. He tells us, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known. So let's just trace out what the author is saying here. John has taught us about the glory of God which Jesus perfectly embodies. He has said the Word, the Word, with with all the weight that designation carries with it, the divine, eternal Son of God, the Word became flesh so that He crosses the creator-creature divide in a way that's too glorious for any human mind to fully comprehend. And He says, we have seen His glory of which we've come to understand, encompasses all the purity of His character and the power of His nature. And out of the overflow of His glorious nature, or to use John's words here, from His fullness, we have all received grace. And and grace not only that we don't deserve, that's the nature of any and all grace, we don't deserve it. But, but we have received an experience of grace unknown to any of God's own people for all of redemptive history prior to the Word becoming flesh. And now, in verse 18, in the culmination of his thought process here, John says, while no one has ever seen God, the second member of the Trinity has made Him known. He says, the only God who is at the Father's side. The only is emphatic there. As to say, He and He only has made Him known because only He can. And the phrase, has made Him known, literally means that He has exegeted God to us. If you're familiar with biblical studies, then then you know that to exegete is to expound or to interpret. So John is telling us that Jesus, as the only one who is able to do so, has interpreted God to us. If you want to know and understand God, where does John say to look? To Jesus. And friends, here's the astounding thing. When we look to Jesus, what do we find? We see in Him the glory of the infinite and eternal God. But for those who believe in His name, that glory, that fullness of His being, the Apostle speaks of, consists of pure, perfect, immeasurable, immovable grace. 
Grace, unmerited favor, John says, is what we receive from His fullness. His glory is to us grace. So for those who belong to the God of glory, He can only be known as the God of glorious grace. Friends, by way of application this morning, I have to ask you a question. Is that how you understand God? To be a God of glorious grace to you? Now to be clear, I'm speaking to Christians. For those apart from Christ, we understand that God is a God of justice. Out of His holy and righteous nature, He punishes sin. It's only in being united to Christ by faith that we can move beyond the knowledge and expectation of God's justice. And that only because for those who have faith, the justice of God has been satisfied on our behalf through Christ on the cross. But for the believer in this room, is what John lays out here how you understand God? That He is to you only the God of grace. Or do you see His relationship with you as a God of justice? Repaying good for good and punishment for sins. Yeah, I must confess that <clears throat> I'm a pretty justice-oriented guy. And that's evident in a number of ways in my life. It's evident in my occasional doubts concerning expectations of the, the goodness of God and, and the grace of God toward me. It's evident in my lack of a disposition of grace towards others. Even toward those most close to me. And that's true of me because I've often understood justice, not grace and mercy, to be the dominating theme of how God interacts with His creation. But I've been convicted as of late, and even more so by this passage, That there is no justice for me. There is no justice for me. There's only grace for me. And that has a, a myriad of implications for me that don't necessarily concern you this morning. But this week, as we celebrate the the incarnation of the glorious Son of God who became man in order to reveal the glorious grace of God, let me encourage you, let let me urge you to consider what it means that the God of glory has identified Himself to His people as the God of grace. Given all that He is, all of the perfections in His many attributes, God has made Himself known to His people as the God of grace. 
allow that to foster within you a, a deeper and richer appreciation for His incarnation. Maybe for you, it, it should lead to a, a different and more Christ-like interaction with those around you. Whatever the case may be for you specifically, we, we know that right theology leads to right living. A true understanding of God leads to true worship. And John tells us here that Jesus has exegeted God to us. He has given us the only true way God is to be understood by His people to His people. And that is only and solely as the God of grace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning that given all of who You are, Lord, You've made clear to us in Christ that You are to us a God of grace. That, Lord, we can draw near to You without fear in Christ. Lord, <clears throat> we can know You. We can have forgiveness and victory over sin, Lord, and walk in fellowship with You. Not fearing punishment, not subject to wrath, not fearing a tit-for-tat kind of relationship, Lord, but seeing You as the God of grace and expecting, anticipating only grace in response. God, we thank You for the incarnation of Christ. We thank You that He has come so that this might be true of us. And Lord God, we pray that as we meditate on this truth that, that You would indeed change us. That You would make us more like Him. More more robust in our thoughts of You, more gracious in our interactions with others. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.